Amen. Well, I'm Ryan White. I'm the lead pastor here at Elam. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. And I just kind of want to start out with, have you ever been disoriented? Have you ever experienced disorientation? I'll put it another way. Have you ever discovered that you have lost all sense of direction in your life? As a little kid, I have one memory of being truly and utterly afraid. I was at a birthday party. I'm pretty sure it was my birthday party. I was about seven or eight, and we were having a, a gathering of friends at a local nature preserve on the outskirts of town. And I grew up in a town in Northern California called Petaluma, which literally means the land of little hills. And I, I remember running and up and down the hills, rolling down. And I remembered kind of darting with friends on the deer pass and the trails and climbing kind of through the gnarled limbs of the oak trees. And there was one moment that I was, you know, kind of having fun and just reveling in, in nature. And I crested this hill and I experienced a moment of utter terror. It's not because there was a mountain lion or anything like that, but it was because as I got up that hill and I was in that beautiful meadow, it was utterly empty. And I could see in every direction, but nothing looked familiar. I couldn't hear the sound of playing children. I couldn't see the bright balloons tied to the picnic table. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I was going, and I didn't know how to get back. And I had a similar experience in adulthood. Uh, Brianna and I were locked into a lease in what we ended up calling the apartment from hell. And it was a place, it turned out, that was infested with uh, bed bugs and cockroaches and spiders and every kind of creepy crawly that you could imagine. Uh, twice they had to hook up these giant heaters to our windows to kind of melt and superheat our apartment so that we wouldn't be taking any of the creepy crawlies with us when we moved out. And uh, it had the added effect of, of melting all the laminate off of our cheap IKEA furniture. So it was all just exposed particle board by the end. And uh, the neighbors were difficult. Uh, one of the neighbors was inside our apartment. He was a two-foot-long rat that lived under our oven somehow and would steal loaves of bread off of our counter at night. The apartment below us was a two-bedroom apartment that had six grown men and their girlfriends living in it, so it created unsanitary conditions for the whole building. Uh, our next-door neighbor... Uh, would chain smoke 10 hours a day outside of our front door in what was an explicitly non-smoking complex. And we had a very belligerent homeless family living out of their car in our single assigned carport. And the, the apartment administrators wouldn't do anything about it. And this was just a year from hell that got compounded by the fact that kind of that year we lost the matriarch of my family, my grandmother, who's kind of the most important spiritual figure in our lives, and oh, Brianna lost a baby to miscarriage. And it was just a disastrous year. 
We were hurting, we were grieving, we were emotionally strung out. Trauma was just compounding upon trauma, and it was true disorientation. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where God was, where we were going, or how to get back. And today we are beginning a journey in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And I have good news because Daniel is a book for those who find themselves living in disorienting times. We're going to take a small bite this morning, just the first two verses of the story. We're not even going to meet Daniel yet this week. He and his friends are just going to be nameless faces in the crowd Instead, in the spotlight is the national trauma, the the great disaster that God's people are experiencing there in the ancient Israelite kingdom of Judah. And here in the first two verses of the book of Daniel, we we hear the first notes of this 70-year-plus song of lament that will become known as Israel's Babylonian exile. And this is what we read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that's in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, came to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So these verses describe what is the opening gambit, the first few moves of what will be Babylon's conquest of Judah. It's the beginning of the end for David's kingdom. The end, it appeared, of the dream of God's people living in the land of promise, in the inheritance and the homeland that they had received from the Lord. And the exile is about to upend everything. And you have to understand how disorienting this is going to be for God's people They're going to lose in the coming years the three markers of their national identity. They're going to lose their king, their land, and their temple. In less than 20 years, this thriving Israelite kingdom is going to just suffer a catastrophic collapse. And it starts here in what is the year 605 BC as Judah finds herself first besieged by the forces of what was called the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And they were under an energetic young ruler named Nebuchadnezzar II, the Lion of Babylon. And his soldiers were really this preeminent military force in the ancient Near East. And They had just defeated the only other two rivals in the region that Babylon had, which was Egypt and Assyria. They were utterly broken and neutered at what was called the Battle of Carchemish. 
And drunk from this victory, Babylon's marching home and they decide to pay a visit to Judah. Judah had previously been aligned with Egypt and they wanted to let them know that there was a new sheriff in town. And here's your ultimatum. You either knuckle under to us or we will destroy you. And completely outmatched, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, just capitulates. He gives his allegiance to Babylon. He agrees to pay this kind of crushing annual tribute to his new overlords. But it's not enough. To add insult to injury, Nebuchadnezzar enslaves the best and the brightest there living in the capital And his soldiers go into the house of God and take God's holy stuff. They claim it as the rightful property of their God, Marduk. And things really begin to just spiral from here. And as I read this book, I I feel like this could be a sword and sandal epic on HBO. And... What happens next is Jehoiakim, he's going to miss one of those tribute payments and the the Babylonians are going to roll back into town and they're going to circle the city once again and and the king is going to go out and defend his land and he is going to die in battle rather quickly. And his young son, Jeconia, is going to have to go out and surrender the kingdom. And Jeconiah, I never know how to pronounce his name, He's taken captive along with really the entire ruling class of Judah, and they're carried off to Babylon. And the Babylonians install a puppet king in the land named Zedekiah, but he doesn't really like being under Babylonian domination either. And so he's going to chafe and rebel. And when he rebels, the Babylonians just decide to annihilate the nation. In 586 BC, the full force of their army is going to roll in. They're going to raise Jerusalem to the ground. They're going to defile and destroy God's temple brick by brick. And then they're going to systematically depopulate the land. All but the poorest are going to be chained and forced to march 600 miles on foot to Babylon. This is heavy stuff. And I bet those living through those events were struggling to understand where they were, where God was, where they were going, and how to get back. And if this wasn't enough to process, they have to hear all of the propaganda that's coming from the Babylonians. I can just kind of hear the spin that they would put on it. Hey, look, our God is stronger than your God. Our God gave our armies victory in battle. Our God dominated your God and took all his stuff. We own you. It's interesting, the Babylonians literally tried to capture Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
They went into the Holy of Holies, and this is what conquering armies do. They would steal the idol of the national deity and take it back and put it in this trophy room in the house of their God. But they get into the Holy of Holies, and there is no God there to grab hold of. Because our God is not a God made by human hands. So they're reduced to kind of pilfering his serving utensils and his cups and his candlesticks. And yes, that is the ancient origin of capture the flag. No joke. (laughs) So where is God in all this? Do you see him in our passage? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. God is here, actively orchestrating events, we read, still directing history as he wills, but what on earth is he doing? And it may be hard to receive, but God is being faithful. He's being faithful to the word that he spoke in the past, and he's being faithful to his justice. And let me try to explain. If you're taking notes, two passages to jot down and and really dig into later. One's Leviticus 26, and the other is 2 Kings 20, verses 12 through 19. And just briefly, that Leviticus passage is written generations before God's people even settle in the promised land. And God is outlining for this people that he's rescued from slavery the blessings and the abundance that will come to them if they cling to God, if they cling to his will, if they cling to his ways. He says in verses 5 and 6, And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. But he also lays out the negative ramifications that will come if they reject God's will and God's ways. If they worship idols that their own hands have made. If they oppress the poor. If they corrupt justice. If they neglect the widow and the orphan and the immigrant in their distress. If they abuse the natural world and and place their trust in politics or, or military force instead of the Lord their God. He says, if you walk that path of rebellion, I'm going to allow you to experience this escalating cascade of negative consequences. And it's not because God is vindictive, but it's because he disciplines those he loves. He says, my people are barreling down a road that leads to hell, and I want to save them from that destruction. And God's judgment is unique. He's not often the direct agent of our pain. Instead, what it happens is he, he removes his shielding hand and let's ex- experience just a, a bit of the natural fruit of our actions. And the Leviticus passage ends with this warning. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I will lay your cities waste 
I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will scatter you among the nations. I'll unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation. That second Kings passage is a little bit more recent history. It talks about one of the kings of Judah, Hezekiah, who was afraid of another neighbor to the north. This time it was Assyria. And he saw that his kingdom was overmatched. And so he prays to the Lord, and God miraculously delivers the nation from her enemies. And Hezekiah's response is, whew, we're we're safe, but let's never get to that place of dependence again, where we have to depend on God to come through for us. We need an ally. So he reaches out to this rising power in Iraq, Babylon, and tries to make a military alliance so that he won't be afraid again. And the prophet Isaiah rolls up and says, hey, buddy, that's a bad move. You should have trusted God. You're looking to Babylon for your salvation. They are going to end up being your destruction. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which is in your, your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you see? God is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his justice. So I hear that God is still in control. He's still affecting his will in the world, but God, why do you have to do it in a way that looks like you're losing? It's a reminder of how humble our God is in his willingness to save us. We are often always thick-headed sinners unworthy of God's grace. But he loves us so much that he is willing to suffer shame in order to awaken us to the danger that we are in. He's willing to lose face, to have a blow to his reputation, to have his house looted and his reign apparently defeated if in doing so he might purge our sin and achieve our ultimate rescue. Isn't this how Jesus makes us new? He did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how our Lord works. And we wouldn't see that without that little phrase, the Lord gave. So when we've lost all sense of direction, God is still present. Even in the face of disaster, God is moving. He's active to rescue and save. So if this is all true, how do we reorient in disorienting times? 
And I just have to say, I am so glad that God does not leave us in the dark. Our God is a God who speaks. And as the first exiles start to get settled there in the land of Babylon, they receive a letter from God. It comes through the prophet Jeremiah, but God speaks so that they might understand what they are experiencing, and he wants to help them chart a path forward. So this is what we read in Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter of Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. To all the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphna, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So it's a letter from God through the prophet of Jeremiah, delivered by these guys who have unpronounceable names. <laughs> and it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and I will bring you back to this place. There's a lot there. Too much for us to unpack this morning, but I want to draw your attention to a few key lines that I think will help us reorient to find our sense of direction in disorienting days. And the first line we see there in verse 4, it says, I have sent you into exile. God needs you to hear that what you're going through has not caught him by surprise. You haven't fallen victim to the, the randomness of history. God is still in control. He's still affecting his will. Despite the storm that you're experiencing, God will steer the ship of your life into his safe harbor if you trust him. This is not to say that God wanted his people to experience exile. But he will use this tragedy for 
his good purposes. No one wants their child to total their first car. But a loving parent can reframe that hard, negative experience as an opportunity for their kid to grow in maturity, to grow in the fear of the Lord, to grow in such a way that they wake up and they plant their feet on the the path of wisdom and life. It's as if God says, I may not have chosen this for you, but this is my will now. And I will draw life from these ashes. From the shattered pieces of your situation, I will make something new and beautiful and whole. So hear my words. I have sent you into exile. And I will go with you. What's more, you'll discover in this confusing, disorienting season, my special invitation for you. The second line that I really want us to key in on and not miss comes in verse 6. He says, do not decrease. In seasons of exile, there are many ways God's people might be tempted to decrease. We might be tempted to decrease in hope. As circumstances grow increasingly challenging, as our alienation and discomfort starts to build, it's easy to surrender to pessimism, to lose our hope that the living Christ is even now making all things new. Furthermore, as as the world gets harder and darker, we might be tempted to decrease in our distinctiveness as God's people. We mentioned this when we were walking through Titus, but as the world gets more coarse and more cutthroat, we might be tempted to neglect the dignity and the gentleness and the love with which Christ calls us to carry ourselves. We might be tempted to decrease literally in numbers. How can I bring a child into a world like this? How can I bring a kid into such a backwards and confused culture? And God rejects that. He says, you can't fail to invest in the next generation. Don't throw up your hands and say, kids these days, they have no work ethic. They're hopelessly addicted to technology. They're they're sexually confused. I'm writing them off. God says, you can't do that. Do not decrease. And finally, you might be tempted to decrease when it comes to meaningful work. You say this marriage, this country, this situation is just going to hell in a handbasket, so I'm just going to fire up Netflix and chill until the Lord brings me home. Do not decrease. I've sent you into exile. Do not decrease. And then the next line to key in on is verse 8. Don't listen to the dreams that the false prophets dream 
There are other prophets in Judah at the time who are announcing that their conviction is this. Everything will be over soon. In less than two years, Babylon will be defeated. You know, the, the old king of Judah will be restored. His corrupt administration will be brought back to their position of power and glory. All you have to do is fight. All you have to do is rebel. All you have to do is, is storm Babylon and take up arms. Take to the streets and power will be restored. Maybe if we ally ourselves with another powerful neighbor, it'll all get rolled back. Jeremiah says, you can't listen to those dreams of easy fixes. God's telling you this at the very beginning. They're lying to you. This won't be a short assignment. It won't be an easy road. It'll be a hard, long road. It'll last 70 years. You're the rest of your life, most of your kids' lives. But don't shrink back, because I will be with you. And God says, know this with certainty. I will rescue you and bring your grandchildren home from this place. That last line, verse 10, when 70 years are complete, I will visit you, I'll fulfill my promise, I'll bring you home. So what have we learned as we try to reorient in disorienting times? God has sent us into this season, specifically in this place and into this culture, and we're charged to not decrease in hope, in distinctiveness, in meaningful work, in numbers. We're told to not fall prey to the culture's promises that this politician or this judge or this resistance will solve all of our problems. We're invited to trust God and walk with him on this long, hard road, confident and the ultimate promise of full restoration, whether in our lives or the next. So all that's great, but what are our marching orders for the 70 years of exile? What is God's special invitation? Well, we saw it in verse 7. But seek the welfare, the shalom, for those of you who know Hebrew, of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That should take us both back to the beginning and, and forward. Back to the call of Abraham when God gives birth to our spiritual family and he tells our patriarch, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed for you. God says, I bless you so that you might be a blessing. I go with you so that you might be a blessing. I preserve you. I uphold you. I give you supernatural strength and endurance so that you might be a blessing. 
or you go forward to Romans 8, 18 through 19, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Our world is groaning, Paul says. It's racked by corruption. It's in bondage to human ambitions. And it's waiting for something to be revealed. And I expect Paul to say, it's waiting for Jesus to come and be revealed in glory. But he says what the world is in desperate need of right now in this moment is for Jesus to be revealed in glory through the lives and actions of his people, for the revealing of the children of God. We are blessed to be a blessing. We've been adopted and loved and called God's own so that we might be agents of his peace, his life-giving, world-renewing welfare. Jesus died on a cross to forgive us. He rose from the dead to, to give us a new lease on life so that we might go out into a broken world and offer his wholeness, his reconciliation to work for and, and give witness to his goodness, beauty, and justice, and grace in big ways and in small ways. Seek the welfare of the pagan city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. What an unexpected invitation. My flesh says that he should have said, pray, pray for the downfall of Babylon. Pray that we might quietly undermine it from within. Pray that we can resist and sabotage at every turn. And he says, no, 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 no. Pray and labor for the welfare of your opponents, your adversaries, your lost and sin-sick neighbors, for in their welfare you will find your welfare. True peace means taking what is broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether that's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. So we'll end here, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. When we find ourselves facing disorienting times, we have a choice to make. And they all are W's, which is just DNA to a pastor. If we can make all the things have the same letter, it is what it is. Will we withdraw in despair and wall ourselves off from the world? Will we war against our changing context, just full of anger and disgruntlement? Will we allow our distinctiveness to wash out as we fade into the image of the culture? Or will we reorient to witness for God in this new time and place. I have sent you into this confusing, challenging, disoriented moment, and I will go with you. Don't decrease. Don't get taken in by the false dreams of easy fixes. Instead, cling to me and my ultimate promise that I will make all things new and reorient to be my witnesses, to give 
tangible evidence of the wholeness and the grace that I can bring in hard places and in broken lives and in hopelessly twisted and knotted relationships. You may have lost all sense of direction as you navigate your marriage, your family life, life on your local school board, life in this culture. Reorient your perspective. Trust God, cling to him, and seek the welfare of that family, that community, that school board, that city where he has placed you. In disorienting times, we reorient to witness for God in this new time and place and set of circumstances. That's our special invitation from God in our time of exile. And true, the road will be long and hard at times, but God goes with us every step of the way. We are Easter people. We are people of hope. We steward hope when all hope is lost because we know the one who is the resurrection and the life. The one who no hard situation is too hard. The one who will make all things new, even us. So let me leave you with just two readings from the New Testament as this word settles into our souls. And may they be blessings for you. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come with heavy hearts. We come sometimes with no sense of direction. Reorient us today as we sing, as we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.